Well, it is a, a very special occasion when we get to uh, both baptize people, bring them into the covenant relationship that we have with the church, and also to serve our, our little ones' first communion. So if you have questions about uh, the policies of our church with respect to these things, we, we believe that children should come to the table sooner than later. We don't want to make it an intellectual exercise that they have to jump through some hoops in order to come to the Lord. Basically, what we're looking for is they understand that they've sinned and they're trusting in Jesus for their salvation and that they are part of the body of Christ. So when Paul talks about discerning the body, he was not talking about some uh, making some kind of a, an abstract uh, connection between bread and, and the body of Christ and all of that. that that's true, but that's not really what discerning the body is all about. Discerning the body is that you know that you are part of God's church and that as part of that church, He has poured out His body and His blood for each of us. And so Holy Communion in our, in our theology is extremely important and we want our children to partake as soon as they understand that they're part of the church and they're hungry for the Lord then uh, we want to bring them to the table. Uh, If you have your Bibles, open them up to Romans 15. We're going to conclude our look at the book of Romans today. And uh, I hope it's been helpful to you. I've I've loved our time in this book. It's uh, an incredible incredible volume. But you have to remember, it was a letter, not a theology uh, treatise. And so... He was concerned about people. The book of Romans should impact us down at our deepest level. So we're going to read the verses uh, 13 through 22. Uh, Now hear God's word. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in Him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm fully convinced dear brothers and sisters, that you are full of goodness. You know these things so well that you can teach each other all about them. Even so, I have been bold enough to write about some of these points, knowing that all you need is to remember. For by God's grace, I am a special messenger from Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. I bring you the good news so that I might present you as an acceptable offering to God made holy by the Holy Spirit. So I have reason to be enthusiastic about all Christ Jesus has done through me in my service to God. Yet, I dare not boast about anything except what Christ has done through me, bringing the Gentiles to God by my message And by the way I worked among them, they were convinced by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's Spirit. In this way, I have fully presented the good news of Christ from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. My ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. I have been following the plan spoken of in the scriptures where it says, those who have never 
been told about him will see, and those who have never heard of him will understand. In fact, my visit to you has been delayed so long because I have been preaching in these places. This is God's word. The book of Romans, I summarized the entire book last week, um, and I, I hope that was helpful. You you really, to just pull scriptures out of the book of Romans, take them out of their context, um, is not really fair to the message of the Apostle Paul. He was creating an entire fabric, a tapestry of truth to communicate to the church. And so, if you look back over the book, the first 11 chapters are all about what God has done for us, as us, in us, and will do through us. And for 11 chapters, exquisitely, he describes the measures that God has gone to to show his grace and his love and his mercy to a rebellious humanity. Most people didn't care. They had their own gods. They created their own idols, their own gods. Those gods served them. They didn't serve that god. And uh, they were content to do that. And then you hear the gospel, which is exactly the opposite of that. God created us so that we could be in a relationship with Him. And that's the, that's the narrative of Scripture. That relationship was broken. It was broken beyond repair. And so, God in His mercy and grace brings His Son to become the satisfaction, the propitiation for our sins. That's a, a theological word I think you should know. Propitiation means to satisfy, to expiate, to take sin away from us, to satisfy the legal requirements of the law. Jesus obeyed the law, whereas we don't. And so there's an exchange that takes place and for 11 chapters, he explains that. Then in chapter 12, he asks us, and Dawson did a wonderful job explaining that, that we are therefore, because of all this, these 11 chapters, we are therefore to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice. The basis is Jesus was the dying sacrifice. This is no hard thing for him to ask us to be a living sacrifice. But it will require you and me to rearrange our loyalties, our allegiances, our love, our devotion when we're successful and when we fail. It doesn't matter. But that our orientation is always to Jesus Christ. We try very hard to teach our little kids uh, that whether they're good or bad, if they're naughty or nice, they're to run to Jesus. Run to Him. Don't try to fix your mess. I'm an old man now. I'm 68 years old, and I haven't been able to fix a single one of my messes. And believe me, I've tried. They're unfixable. So you run to him, and when you do, you experience this amazing grace that the book of Romans talks about. In these last few verses, the rest of the book, by the way, we're stopping here because in the rest of the book, they're just travel plans that uh, Paul explains and greetings and hellos and goodbyes and that sort of thing. But these last verses are important. So we're going to look at the prayer he prays, the commendation he makes, and the reminder 
that he presses on us to remember something. And then I'm going to share with you very briefly the four dimensions of what the gospel relationship is in the book of Romans and I think throughout scripture, okay? Four dimensions. And uh, finally, we'll look at this issue of seeing and hearing. So uh, let's get into the prayer, first of all, very quickly. He says, I pray God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy, peace, because you trust in Him. In other words, you have faith in Him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. What Paul is praying for is internal and external transformation. He's not praying it no he's not praying their circumstances get better which is what mostly fills our prayers think about it we pray and we want God to change things so that our life is better heal me uh, help me pay my bill and nothing wrong with that I'm not saying there's anything wrong with petitioning God for our needs at the same time he could meet all of your needs and you could live in perfect health Never, had a day, never have a day of depression and yet not be transformed. Just be you and nothing else going on. And that's something that God is not in favor of. He wants to transform us, to renew us so that we can grow in glory. One, Paul said in another letter, from one glory to another to another until we finally behold God face to face. It's, it's, a, it's a, a vision of reality that no other religion even comes close to approaching. Now, we don't always make a very good show of it in our Christian circles. Sometimes we really <laughs> distort things. But we're trying to do our best, and we're working hard to be attentive to God's word. That's why we take time to go through these scriptures the way we do. He says God is the source. I told you last week, everybody has their hope in something. It I don't know what yours is. I know what mine are, and I have to battle them constantly because I want my sources of hope to prevail, and sometimes they don't prevail. And I'm shattered and the, the ground out from under, moves out from under. But when I have found in my life, after following the Lord for many years, when I have put my hope in Him, the ground can shift, the, the mountains can shake, the oceans can dry up and fall away, everything can collapse. But there is in me some sort of uh, an anchor, a solidity that we all are looking for and want. And so he says, don't forget this. God is the source of your hope. And that will produce joy and peace because of who we are trusting. Not how strong your faith is. Remember, I told you, faith is not a power or a force or something that you have in you that you've got to stretch out. Faith is nothing but a choice. You're going to trust something. You're going to have hope in something. You get to choose. What are you going to trust? It's just a decision. And if you put your trust and your, and your faith and your confidence in yourself or uh, you put it in your education or perhaps your bank account or like me, my, my incredible good looks, 
you, you, you can put your, your faith in anything. But how, what is that thing going to, how is that thing going to impact you back? You can have all the faith in the world that this music stand uh, is going to save you and, and make sure that you don't die and go to, to the devil. You can have mountains of faith. This isn't going to do anything for you. But put the tiniest amount of faith in Jesus Christ. A mustard seed, he said. Just a little bit. And you can move a mountain. What is the object of our faith? That's what faith is. Where are we putting our trust? And biblical hope, as we've told you for years, I have, and I know that Dawson has mentioned it, Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. Biblical hope is simply trusting in something that is absolutely 100% true that is simply in the future. It's just not yet. It hasn't arrived yet. And so therefore, we put our hope ahead and our faith from Hebrews Hebrews chapter 11, faith becomes the substance of that thing for which we are hoping. The scripture says we have hope. The world tells us have hope in something. And the Bible says have hope in someone. Someone who will never fail you. He will never fail Evelyn. Never she could, God forbid, she grows up and shakes her fist and says, I don't believe in you. Her, her, if that child doesn't believe, it doesn't bother God a bit. He just goes after him more. Every parent, if you have children, you've got to lock yourself into that. You can't control the way. Your kids could go sideways. What is your hope? Well, I hope that your hope is in the covenant promises of God and not what a great parent you are. Because you may not be a very good parent. Or you make a mistake or you whatever. No, your hope is in the Lord. And you don't take that for granted. You don't presume upon His grace. But you pour your life into trusting Him and His Word. That's Paul's prayer. Now look at the condemnation. This is verses 14 through 15. I found this really interesting. I hadn't thought about it very much until just this past week. He tells the Roman church, which were mostly Gentiles, but there probably were a lot of Jews in the church as well, and they were trying to figure out how do we get along. We don't like each other, Jews and Gentiles. They didn't mix in God's uh, scheme of the universe. There's only two kinds of people. There There were His chosen people and there were all those other people. And so there was this uncleanness related to people that were not of the Hebrew race. And especially if they didn't believe, if they didn't have faith in the Hebrew God. And all of a sudden they're thrown together because God all along meant to tear down those walls between Jews and Gentiles and bring all the nations to Himself. And they're struggling to get along. Nevertheless, he commends them. Unlike the book of Galatians, unlike the book of 1 Corinthians, unlike some of the other letters, there are places in there where Paul really goes after him, goes after him hard, the church, because they're not listening, they're misbehaving, and he won't have it. Here, he actually commends them. 
There's no grievous problem in Rome. And so he encourages him. He says, I'm fully convinced of your goodness and that you know these things. When I read that, I thought of our church, of Christ the King. This is a good church. These are good people that are sitting next to you. When I say good, I don't mean good in the sense that they earn salvation. But we have a wonderful congregation. Are we without fault? No, only you. I am the only one without fault. No, we we all have our faults. But you can look around and you can be confident that you are seeing and hearing authentic Christianity in this place, for the most part. I'm not saying we fully produce it all the time. And that because of that, we can be encouraged. He commends their goodness, their knowledge of the gospel, their ability to instruct. That's one of the strengths of our church, is we have good theology and we're good at expressing it and good at sharing it with others. I can't tell you. We went to a pastor meeting this week, uh, Dawson and I, with some another group of pastors and you just can't believe Jeff Jeff White was there and we're we're talking to them and they're just bombarding us with questions because we have good answers one thing that the Presbyterian church has we can offer good theology to the rest of the church we don't know how to clap I'm not sure why <laughs> I just I haven't figured that out yet but boy, we can outline the book of Romans, right? No problem there. So we all have our gifts. And Paul is saying, you, Roman church, you're a gifted church. You've got, you've got things going in a good way. And he commends them. But he does, almost apologetically, he tells them, I, even though you're, this is all good, all good, I've got to remind you about the gospel. Now, let me ask you, why would Paul say, I need to remind you about the gospel? How long do you think it takes you to forget the gospel? Good. You're very pessimistic. That, yeah. I'll just think about it for a second. Think of, think of the structure of Scripture and the way God made the world and why He made the world and who you are and who He is and all of that. Big picture. How long will it take you to forget the gospel? No, nobody's going to bite. Only Sarah has courage. All right. It takes about six days. Do you understand? Six days. Beats me. <laughs> Six days. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it as, a, as an, a metaphor. It doesn't take long for us to forget what the gospel means in our lives. And it's why God calls us together one day in seven to remind ourselves. This is a reminder. The table, the baptisms we do, the bringing our babies to the table, bringing our children to baptism, baptizing adults, doing these things, hearing the Word of God, singing our songs, greeting one another. Just the whole thing. Because those six days between the Sabbaths can tear you to bits. And yes, sometimes it's five seconds. And you multiply those seconds and those minutes and those hours. 
And you long, or hopefully, you long to come to church. You long to be around your people, around people that will not judge you, that will understand you, because they understand themselves. And this is all, Paul's message from 12 to 15 has been all about that genuine love, offering yourself a sacrifice, not pleasing yourselves, looking to the good and the needs of others before yourself. He's describing a life that is, reflects Jesus' life, a life of service and sacrifice. Jesus washed people's feet. He didn't expect them to wash his feet. He fed the multitudes. He didn't expect them to feed him. He touched the lepers, not expecting to get leprosy, but expecting them to get clean because of Him, which was opposite of the way every other religion worked. You touched unclean, you're unclean. No, Jesus went and touched the unclean, fully expecting them to become clean because of the power that was in Him. You see, it's a life, a description of a life of service and sacrifice. So we must, and you all have heard me say this for years, you must preach the gospel to yourselves every day. Have y'all, y'all, everybody remember I've said that? Preach the gospel. You have to remind yourself of who you are, who Jesus is, what He came to do, what is the real reason He came. To just give you an example of what a good person would do? Or did He come to do something for you and as you? What did He come for? Why does He exist? Why is the rest of the Bible, why is there anything written after Genesis chapter 3? Why? Not to give us a bunch of rules and regulations. We don't need more of those. We need somebody. Somebody that we can relate to who loves us and cares for us and we know that He will never leave us or forsake us. Yes? That's what we need. Jerry Bridges, who's the... the, um, president of the Navigators for years, and some of you know his story. He heard Jack Miller, one of our Presbyterian ministers in our denomination, years ago say, you've got to preach the gospel to yourself every day. Now, Dr. Miller didn't come up with that. He got it from others. They're earlier, like Martin Luther said it, other people said it, uh, that we need to be reminding ourselves of the gospel every day. But Jerry Bridges put a different twist on it, and I thought this was really something, because it changed his life, this idea of the gospel every day, preaching it to yourselves. And he said this, not long before he died, 2016, I think. Today, this is Jerry Bridges, today I think the phrase has become a bit shop-worn, preach the gospel to yourself every day. So I've changed it. And the way he changed it was to live by the gospel every day. And I like that because we're not encouraging you just to think about it. Right? Okay, I need to preach the gospel myself and you just start thinking about it. That Whatever that mechanism is where we're thinking and preaching the gospel to ourselves needs to be translating out into our lives. In other words, theology, you know how much theology is worth? Zero. Unless it makes an impact in your life. There are people that know lots and lots of theology. I mean, to the point that their, brain, you th- their brains are going to melt because they know so much theology. But they don't know Jesus Christ. They just don't. And so their theology makes no difference. 
but find someone who has poured their heart into studying and learning and trying to understand what God is teaching us in His Scriptures. And there, if you find someone that does that with their whole heart, then they cannot be moved. They cannot be shaken. And that's what we pray, Dawson and myself and the elders of your church. We pray that for you. That you will know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Another verse from the book of Romans. So it's not merely to preach to yourself or just to think about it and remind yourself. No, it's as you're thinking, you've got to say, well, what part of my life, what part of my actions, my, my internal mechanisms, what part of that's not lining up with the gospel? The accusation that Paul made against the Galatian church and against the apostle Peter when he fell into this idea of legalistic, a legalistic approach to God, Paul said this in front of everybody, you're not walking in line with the Gospel. He had the temerity to do that to the Apostle Peter. You're not walking in line with the Gospel. You're walking on a different path. And that path will lead you to destruction. So you've got to be prepared to remind yourself and then look at your walk. Look at, how, look at who you are. I have not, as I've gotten older, folks, my sins have not gotten less. If anything, they've gotten more, and they are more deeply embedded where I can hide them better. And it's so frustrating. I want to be, be I want to be good, but I understand that there is something else inside me, this, this, old, this old body that is perishing and going away, that I'm having to battle. And the only way I'm going to be successful is not by willpower, but by trusting Jesus Christ. Yes? That's all. I, I'm going to have to take each and every failure and I'm going to have to go back to the Gospel. Each and every... Forget failure. What about your joys? What happens when something wonderful happens? When, when, what, what happens when your life is going well? Who do you thank? Where do you direct that? What is the object, or what Jerry Bridges said, is the mainspring of our life, the thing that is driving us, the engine. This is what the Bible calls the heart. It's the things that we love, not emotionally love, but the things that are of top, priority to us and folks like Tim Keller says if a man dying on a cross for you is at the top of that at the center of that a man who prayed for his enemies a man who prayed for those that crucified him if that person is at the center of your life you will not have trouble forgiving others you will be successful battling sin. Not every time, but often. You will have someone with you. This is my 20th year at Christ the King. In fact, in June, it'll be 20th year to the day. And uh, when we were meeting with these, these pastors the other day, and we're, they're asking questions, we're, talking, we're asking them questions. I told one of them, that my time in ministry has been miserable. 
And he said, yeah, me too. I go, yeah. Yeah, my time has been miserable until three years ago, and Dawson came. I'm going to embarrass him, but I don't care. All of a sudden, for the first time, I had hope. Thank you. And he knows I mean that. Because I wasn't alone. I had somebody there with me. And uh, I, can't, I can't even begin. I tell his, his mom, whenever she's here, how much he has meant to me. I know he's meant stuff to you, but you don't matter. He meant, he's really meant something to me. It's, you cannot go it alone, folks. You need your church. You need your ministers. You need your elders. You need your women's councils. You need your friends, just the people next to you. You just need somebody. You cannot go alone. You will get shredded. Satan is like a ravening lion and he will cut you out of the herd and he will take you into a dark place and slaughter you. We've got to stay together. And this is what Paul's pushing for them. His commendation, his reminder. And then I want to share with you very quickly the four dimensions of the gospel relationship. And this is it. You should write this down. You should put it somewhere where you never forget it. What is at the heart of gospel relationship? It is this. Jesus came for us. That means He came as a baby, as a child, as a human being for us. To do something for us that we could not do for ourselves. And He didn't do it from up there. He came down here. And He didn't just come down here. He went all the way down. Low. A questionable birth. Who's his daddy? Well, we don't know. And born in a manger and living in poverty and and moving to Fabens. No, it was actually Nazareth, but it was like Fabens. It was a terrible place. If you're from Fabens, I'm sorry. I can say that because Marty V lived in Fabens, my wife. I mean, think about it, folks. He didn't do something from up there, you know, like that. He came down here, vulnerable, killable. I remember Dr. John Gerstner saying that if we could get our hands around God's throat, we would choke Him to death. And the students at Pittsburgh Seminary didn't like that. And they said, how... Could you say that, Dr. Gerstner? And Gerstner said, well, when we did get our hands on him, we did kill him. When he made himself available and vulnerable, we did kill him. And we're fooling ourselves if we don't think there's that kind of enmity between God and mankind that Jesus comes to restore. He came for us. He came as us, a substitute. He came to uh, uh, live in us by the power of His Holy Spirit and then through us to live our lives or to be lived out through the world. So, for us, as us, in us, through us. Let me give it to you quickly how Paul kind of put this forward in a, in a literary way. It's really beautiful. Look at 16, uh, the first part of 16. Through us. I'm going to go from the back, the last one through us, to the center, which is as us, for us, and in us. So, 
bear with me. Through us, Paul affirms that he was a special messenger. This is very interesting. I'm a special messenger from Jesus to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and present them, present them to you. Paul's role with the Gentiles is unique. It was even ironic because, I mean, he was a Jew of the Jews and they didn't have anything to do with the Gentiles. So what does God do? Sends him to the Gentiles to be around the unclean people. And Paul relished it. He realized, I'm, I've been thinking they were unclean. That's me. So he did not downplay his role. And I want to say that to you all. Don't downplay your role. You know, when you go to somebody and you tell you, gosh, this is a great thing you did, and you say, it's all him, it's all him, and you point your finger to the sky, and you're kind of deflecting the praise, which is nothing but pride. You're, you're trying to deflect, it's all him, it's all him. No, it's not all him. It's all him, but it's all you as well. You are not just a cog in a wheel or a tool in a toolbox that he uses. He comes into a relationship with us. He loves us. And, and nobody is going to be able to do the thing in this world that you can do. You individually. And He cherishes that. Richard Pratt used to tell us in school, he says, God-centeredness without man-centeredness is not God-centeredness at all. They are intermeshed, uh, intermingled. There's a web, as Richard used to say, of mutual reciprocity between God and man. How do we know? Because Jesus became a man. If it had always been God up there and us down here, we could have said rightly, oh, it's just God up there, it's all to Him, all to Him. But no, He sent His Son for us, as us. In us. Look at 16b, the second part. This is where he gets to the part about the action of God. 100% God, 100% us. For us, as us, in us, you are made holy by the Holy Spirit. John Murray, the great theologian, uh, I think he was at Princeton and then later, doesn't he go to Westminster after Princeton? Something like that. John Murray said, It's a fact frequently overlooked, that the New Testament, the most characteristic terms that refer to sanctification are used, listen to this, it's one of the greatest New Testament scholars in the world, not of process, but of a once-for-all definitive act. Sanctification, in other words, our improvement of our lives as we trust the Lord is a process, to be sure. But there's also another sense that John Murray recognized saying that God has already declared you or stated you holy and you are moving towards that. Not justificate, not being made right with Him. You're made right with Him, but you're moving towards a goal of holiness, glorification, and beauty for your life. And you're not simply just a cog in a wheel that God will dismiss. You know, well, if you don't do it, I'll get somebody else. Never. Stop thinking of yourself that way. He wants you, and He wants you yourself. And He will empower you to do whatever it is if you will trust Him.
Look at, at, at verse uh, 18 and 19. He, he does this in a literary way. I can't really get into detail because we're running out of time, but it's a chiasm. He puts God at the center. Paul is on the outside of this chiasm in verse, in verse uh, uh, 16 and 17, and then in verse 18, 18 and 19, he puts God at the center. He says, I dare not boast because the Gentiles were convinced by the Spirit not by me. Okay? So that's the center. But then he goes back and he says, in this way, I fully presented. He brings himself back in. So it's not either or. It's not Paul or God. It's Paul and God. And it's God and you. Through you. He means to change the world. That's your calling. To give up your life in sacrifice and service for others. That's why we don't want to please ourselves. That's why we want to express genuine love, not fake love. That's why we want to forget, be willing to forgive as we have been forgiven. It's, it's an incredibly powerful message. In this way, I fully presented the gospel from Illyricum, Jerusalem to Illyricum. In other words, everywhere I went, my life was being spent to preach the gospel. Whether he was preaching, literally doing what I'm doing right now, or whether he was making a tent. Paul was uh, trained as a tent maker, and he was making a tent. His life, in fact, that's where Dawson and I are going to go next, our next series coming up next week. We're going to talk about living a life that is beautiful and evangelistic. What, What does it look like to really live your life like a Christian? We don't do a very good job of it, but let's admit it and let's work at it. Yes? All right, good. That's what we want to hear. Those weak yeses. (laughs) All right, look. Finally, the seeing and the hearing. I want to go where Christ has never been preached before. I'm following the Scriptures. Some people, let me just say these few things. Some people spend their entire lives in a church and never hear the gospel. That can be because it's never being proclaimed, and the people are not in their churches, they're not using the scriptures, they're not speaking in an expository, they're not explaining what the scriptures are saying, they're just talking. Or the person themselves won't listen. So both can be true. So you can be in a church like ours, and you can harden your heart and refuse to listen. There are also many who've never heard the gospel because they find it hard to hear because we present barriers. One of the things that I think Dawson and I want to communicate in this next series we're going to do is how to break down those barriers and become a good listener to exercise patience when we are involved with somebody that doesn't really get the gospel. They don't get it. I don't get it. I'm not sure what you're talking about. I have my whole other set. And we, don't, we won't even take five minutes to, to walk with them a little bit, help them understand. I can tell you about the people that came in my life one after another that had to hold my hand and sometimes drag me, kicking. And there were, there were uh, uh, skid marks out in the f- parking lot of churches where I was not going in there. And finally, there are those that have never heard. We live in an expanding neighborhood here. Uh, uh, our church is, we couldn't have asked for a better location if we had just 
had our pick of anywhere on the west side, best location, and God dropped it in our lap. We have an obligation, folks, to preach this gospel. If you love him, you will do what he says. So I want to close with this. This is a quote. You won't be able to find this very many places. Um, Maybe you can on Google now, but it's the preface to the French Bible written by John Calvin as a dedication to the king of France. And I got this from uh, Dr. Farrell, who, one of my professors, and uh, he, I, he or somebody translated it into English. And so this was the preface to the French Bible written by John Calvin. Now listen carefully because I think all John Calvin did was go through the book of Romans and then write this. Listen, it's fabulous. All good which could be thought or desired is to be found in Christ Jesus alone. For he was humbled to exalt us. He became a slave to free us. He became poor to enrich us, was sold to redeem us, made captive for our deliverance, condemned for our absolution. He was made a curse for our blessing, an offering for sin for our righteousness. He was marred that we might be restored. He died for our life so that by Him harshness is softened, anger appeased, darkness made light, injustice justified, weakness made strong, dejection consoled, sin prevented, scorn despised, fear made sure, debt canceled, toil made light, sadness rejoiced, misfortune made blessed, difficulty eased, disorder ordered, division united, ignominy made noble, rebellion quelled, threats threatened, ambushes uncovered, assaults assailed, effort weakened, Combat combated, war warred against, vengeance avenged, torment tormented, damnation damned, ruin ruined, hell held prisoner, and death done to death, and immortality made immortal. That is a summary of the book of Romans. Will you trust him? I hope you will. Father, we thank you for this kindness and goodness that you've so graciously shared with us. We don't deserve it. We know that. We're painfully aware of our failures. And yet at the same time, we marvel that you commended your love to us on the worst day of our lives while we were yet in our sins hateful to hate hating you despising you that you commended and demonstrated your love to us in saving us on that day so that every day after that 
We can rejoice in you. Death has been put to death. And we ask you, Father, that you would, by the death of your Son and these emblems of bread and wine, that you would feed us in our hearts by faith. Help us. Save us and have mercy on us. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.